Web at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be with us for the next hour. We take people's questions as they've been studying God's word. And maybe there's a passage that's challenging you or you're seeking maybe biblical wisdom on an issue you're facing in your life or family or ministry. And well, if we can help by God's grace, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us again locally. It's 843-525-1859. We live stream through the internet. So we have people who listen in different places. And of course, after the broadcast, it's always posted so that uh, if you submit a question uh, during this time and you can't listen to it, you can always uh, listen to the answer later on in the day. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, or you can email it to us directly here at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. Let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right, Pastor, we do have a live caller. Let's get to them right now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Pastor Brogy. Good morning. I Thanks for calling. Questions. Um, the, I know in Genesis 15 that it, it tells about God giving uh, Israel to Abraham, but I'm thinking there was a more graphic, more detailed description. Someplace else, I, can, I can't put my mind out to the book and verse, chapter, of, uh, of the, basically the boundaries of Mediterranean to Egypt and the Euphrates and so on. And the second question I have is, uh, we get Old Covenant and New Covenant. We're in the age of grace. I know how, how much of the Old Covenant um, are we living by, to live by? It seems like the Ten Commandments is just a common sense thing that everybody knows. But uh, the, the question comes up, it seems, a lot of times about Old Covenant and New Covenant. How much do we keep? How much, do we, how much don't we? Well, those are great questions. And so uh, let me first start with the Abrahamic Covenant. You might want to consider listening to my series on Genesis, I think I did over 60 messages on the book of Genesis. But one of the things that we hammer, because it's so critical, uh, in the book of beginnings, in the beginning are the first three words in the English text. It's one word in the Hebrew text, barashit, which means in the beginning. In fact, the Jews call this book barashit. Uh, They uh, take the names of the first five books of the Bible And they grab it from the first words in the verse of a given book, whether it's Genesis or Exodus or whatever. We use the uh, terminology that the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and they came over as our titles into English. In either case, the, the Abrahamic covenant is made in Genesis 12, and the covenant has three dimensions to it, a land, a blessing, and a people. And so God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great 
and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse the one who curses you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God is going to bless all the families of the earth through a man at this point, he's called Abram. He's later has his name changed to Abraham because through his lineage is God is going to unfold. And God begins here saying from you is going to come one. Uh, And he narrows the scope to uh, his grandson, Jacob, who has 12 sons. And one of the 12 sons is named Judah and from the tribe of Judah. And then God tightens the focus a little bit more and not just from the tribe of Judah, but one particular family within Judah, namely the family of David will come the Messiah. And so that's the first dimension of the Abrahamic covenant that God gives. And then he uh, affirms again in Genesis 15, he says to him, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And uh, of course, they have this dialogue where, you know, God tells tells him, he says, look, I'm childless and uh, the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, since you were given, since you've given me no offspring, one born of my house must be my heir. That's his reasoning. And so God takes him outside the tent and uh, he tells him, no, this man will not be your heir, not Eleazar, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look at the stars in the sky, see if you can count them. So shall your descendants be. And so, again, God uh, restrains it, tightens it, and makes it very, very clear. Then he also gives some dimensions concerning the land. Of course, um, he says here, I will establish my covenant. I'm reading now from Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting covenant. So God promises him not just a specific um, uh, blessing that would come through his loins, namely that the nations of the world would be blessed because from Abraham would come the uh, promised Messiah, but he also promises him a land, the land of the Canaanites. And as you keep reading in Genesis 17, God gives the boundaries of the land. If you look at a map of Israel today and you see the actual land that they have, it's actually not reflective of all that God has for them. And so in some respects, this is a promise that will not be fully fulfilled because it was never fulfilled. And this is why it's important by the way, to underscore the truth that God is a promise-keeping God and that the church has not replaced Israel because God gave specific dimensions to the land. They're repeated in 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel in the book of Kings. And over and over, God underscores the dimensions of the land, a land that they had not fully yet possessed. And so the church is not the new Israel. God is going to keep his promise that he gave to Abraham, and someday they will fully inhabit the land. Now, the second half of your question concerns Old Covenant versus New Covenant. And, of course, one of the um, 
uh, jobs of, uh, of a Christian who's studying his Bible as he reads the Old Testament is what applies to me today and what maybe was unique uh, to the Jewish people of the Old Testament. A good rule of thumb is if it's illustrative of what God was going to do through the Messiah, then it has no application for today. And so there are typologies that were fulfilled in Jesus. And so no one last Sunday at your church brought an animal sacrifice for the pastor to slay, number one, because there's no place to do it, but number two, uh, the blood of bulls and goats and animals could never remove sin, and they only foreshadowed what the Messiah was going to do through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God, through the Lord Jesus completely dealt and paid for sin. Now, there are other dimensions of the Old Testament that are part of the ceremonial law, and they distinguish the people of Israel. And the challenge is that sometimes they're mixed together in the same chapter, and you have to ask, well, what is ceremonial and what's moral? <laughs> and so, for instance, take tithing, for instance. Some people say, well, tithing is part of the ceremonial law. It has no application for the church. But remember, tithing was practiced ever before God gave the written law through Moses. Abraham practices tithing. And the New Testament uh, uses that in Hebrews 7 as a reminder to us that when he gave to Abraham, in essence, he was giving to a type of Christ, and he gave him a tenth of all that he had. And so I I take it that that's part of God's moral law, part of God's eternal law. In one passage of uh, Scripture, in Leviticus, uh, he deals with the subject of bestiality. I can promise you, though, that's not repeated anywhere in the New Testament. It's still part of God's moral law. Uh, God does not, when he tightens in his mind who you are able to marry, it would still be wrong to marry your sister today. Why? Because God forbids that. Uh, And so that's not repeated in the New Testament, but God's moral law is binding. So it is challenging in some places, you know, in reference, for instance, to the dietary laws. Uh, You might read the dietary laws that are found in, for instance, uh, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, and you say, well, does this have application for us today? And I would say no. Why? Because there's a New Testament principle that overrides it. So you don't have to wonder. Now, there are some people like Seventh-day Adventists who, for whatever reason, they think it's still applicable and they follow the dietary laws of the Old Covenant. But that was part of God's ceremonial law that distinguished Israel. And I don't have to wonder in reference to that because when I come to passages like uh, Deuteronomy chapter, I mean, Romans chapter 14 or Mark chapter 7, where Jesus declares all meats clean or Acts 10, where God gives Peter a vision of the sheet coming down with all kinds of animals, clean and unclean in it, and he's commanded to eat. And he says, Lord, I, I can't eat anything unclean. And, and God is uh, illustrating that he sees the Gentiles in this age uh, on the same level as the Jews, that he was going to make one people called the church. Well, God doesn't use an illustration that has error in it. God always illustrates truth with truth. So you have passages like that, a plain statement in Mark 7 where Jesus declares all meats clean. 
Paul deals with the subject extensively in Romans, the 14th chapter, in terms of not causing a brother to stumble, maybe who grew up under the dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant. But when I put all these passages together, I can see what is part of God's eternal moral law that applies today. Sometimes um, the the law still applies, but God... um, Uh, changes maybe the promise that's in reference to it. For instance, um, God says in the Decalogue, which is found in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20, uh, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Uh, This is the first commandment with a promise, and the extended promise is given in the account in Deuteronomy that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. In what land? In the land of Israel. When Paul quotes the same passage in Ephesians 6, he says that you might live long on the earth. Same tenth, same fifth of the tenth commandments, but he um, applies it differently and that God's people now are not, for the most part, restricted to a piece of property called Israel, but God's people right now are found across the world in every tribe, tongue, and nation. Or someday that will be a reality, not every tribe, tongue, and nation today. But there are people across the earth who are believers in Jesus, who are members of the church. And so they can take the fifth commandment and apply it to the land they live in, whether it's the United States or France or wherever, if they are a believer in Christ and meeting the prerequisites of that promise. So um, there are some principles that God has contained within the scripture. How do I know that? Because of the way the New Testament writers interact with the Old Testament. And so they help me to see how I should interpret the Old Testament and apply it to today. So if it's part of God's moral law, it is forever to be applied even today under the New Covenant, even if it's not mentioned in the New Testament And again, New Testament, the word diatheke, you could translate it new covenant, the new deal, the new promise. And so our Bible uh, is divided at least amongst believers who affirm Jesus as Lord into two parts. What they, what we call today the Old Testament, a Jew would call it the Tanakh, which is an anachronym for Torah, the Nephaim, the prophets and the Ketuvim, the writings Um, They don't call it the Old Testament. It's the only thing they have. They call it the Tanakh. But we divide it in our Bibles today, the Old Deal, the New Deal, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. And so um, we are able to discern what applies today and what doesn't. That's a great question. Let's uh, move on to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Robert from Riverside, California writes, Pastor Carl, how does the Bible say that Abraham offered his only son Isaac when he had another son Ishmael? Well, that that's a great question. And it comes down to... Uh, one, an issue of authority and an issue of how God uses the term his only begotten son. It's kind of interesting because uh, if you go to Israel today and by God's grace, we have a trip that is planned in September of 2019. In fact, we'll have an informational meeting coming up on the first Sunday in September And the brochures will be released uh, two weeks uh, from, uh, well, on the last Sunday in August. But uh, if that's a trip that interests you, uh, you might want to live stream the meeting at 1245 on September the 2nd. 
but nonetheless, um, if you go to Israel today and you look at the Temple Mount, you see a structure called the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock is a, a building that was built in the late 7th century by the Muslims to commemorate a couple of things. And one of the things they commemorate is that the, is the place where Abraham offered, not Isaac, but they say Ishmael. Though interestingly, the uh, Quran never specifies technically that it was Ishmael and not Isaac that was offered there. Uh, that was um, uh, a later conclusion that they made uh, that Ishmael was the only son that Abraham offered. But I, I've turned to my Bible here to Genesis uh, 22, and it says, Now it came about after these things, after the, uh, the war that he had had that's mentioned in the previous chapter. After these things, it says specifically that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I tell you. Interesting, later in the New Testament, in Hebrews 11, uh, I think it's verse 17, we're told that God again tested Abraham and he offered up his only begotten son. And there the word, interestingly, is the same word that's used in John 3.16 where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his monogene, his only begotten, his uniquely begotten son. Now, obviously, um, Abraham's son was not begotten in the same way uh, that uh, Jesus uh, left heaven and came into this world. Isaac was a created being, but it's a term that's applied only to Jesus and to Isaac, who, by the way, in Hebrews 11, he's described as a type of Christ, but he is only begotten in that he too is a miracle child in that uh, they have him when it's beyond their ability to technically conceive. She's 90, he's 100, and it's impossible from a human's perspective to have a Bible, uh, to have a baby. And it's as impossible as being able to have a, a virgin conception. And so in that sense, they are both uh, called the monogene. In fact, James in James 2, where he's illustrating salvation by grace through faith alone, and that if you have a genuine faith, unlike demon faith, that your faith will show itself in works. And so he's speaking about not justification before God, but justification before man. And he asks the question, if you remember, wasn't Abraham justified by his works when he offered his only son on the altar? So in what sense is he the only son? Well, number one, because he's the promised child. We just read a moment ago from the first caller from Genesis 17, when in Genesis 15, that again, Isaac is affirmed as the promised son, Abraham is thinking, well, Eleazar, no, one is going to come from your loins. And of course, uh, Sarah gets creative at some point. Well, God said from your loins, obviously not through me, because I'm unable to seemingly have a baby. So she gives him Hagar. Uh, he is not um, in rebellion but he thinks that this is how God's going to pull it off. And then, of course, God appears again and says, no, it's going to happen through Sarah. 
she is going to be the one who's going to give you a child. And God waits until it is absolutely humanly impossible that no one could say, well, they just had a a latecomer. No, uh, it was absolutely impossible. He's the promised son of Genesis 17. And so in Genesis chapter 17, let me just turn there for a moment. Genesis 17, and let's see, it is in verse um, 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, uh, your wife, for Sarai, your wife, you shall um, not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. So God is, again, tightening it, making it very, very clear. Now, interestingly, when you think about the children that Abraham had, he had not only this boy Ishmael through Sarah, but later on, uh, after Sarah was long dead, he had another child, and that child, uh, some other children through a woman named Keturah. So number one, uh, he is the promised son. Number two, he has a unique status, and so he's given the the title of monogene in the New Testament, uniquely begotten because he's a miracle child. And, and Paul echoes this in Romans 4, if you remember. He says though his body was as good as dead. Um, and of course, uh, thirdly, and he is definitely a unique child in that uh, he is distinguished from Ishmael and from Keturah in the six children that Uh, Abraham ended up having through her. So now I'm reading Genesis 25. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, which is how God describes uh, Hagar, not as his wife, and as he describes uh, the sons that God gave through Keturah, Abraham gave, gave gifts to them while they were still living. So God gave gifts to the sons of Keturah and Hagar, Uh, though they're described as concubines, because Isaac is a unique son. He is the son of promise. So um, he has that distinction because it's through Isaac that God is going to bring the Savior of the world. Great question, important to think through. I cover this in my Genesis series, and if you don't have the Search the Scriptures phone app, it's available at the App Store for Android and iPhones, and just type in Search the Scriptures. It's .org, not .com, and you'll find all the messages on Genesis. And if there's two books in the Bible that you really need to know in order to understand where God is taking things. One is Genesis and the other is Acts because they're both books of beginnings of sorts. Genesis has in kernel truth all of the great historical doctrines that God is going to unfold in human history. And Acts is also a book of beginnings in that it's, it describes how the church was started in the first 30 years of church history. And both those books are really foundational to interpreting the rest of the Bible. So if you don't, for instance, understand that God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, then you'll buy into some of the reform thought of our day that says the church is the new Israel. God has no plans for future national Israel and that the church has taken all the promises that God had made to her. So if you don't understand some things in Genesis, things will be get very confusing later on. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Jay writes, I've recently heard of the view of 
Molinism and Ooh. wanted to know your thoughts on it. Also, what books would you recommend to study more on God's sovereignty and man's free will? Well, Molinism, as it's called, was named after a Jesuit. I studied under the Jesuits when I was at Boston College. The Jesuits were started in the 12th century by one of the popes, and I can't remember the name of that particular pope, but uh, it was the official teaching order of the Roman Catholic Church, and they still are today. In fact, the largest community of Jesuits in the world uh, reside at Boston College, where I did my undergraduate work. But there was a 16th century um, man by the name of Louis de Molina, and uh, he was a French Jesuit, and he uh, propagated what's called Molinism. Now, some would take issue with that. They would say, well, there's a couple of other guys who uh, taught the same thing, and they should be given equal credit. But nonetheless, this doctrine, which is actually not totally accurate— uh, is named after this particular Jesuit, and so it's called Molinism. And he argued for something that was called middle knowledge. That is to say, um, God knows how a person would respond if they had a certain knowledge. And so what he tries to do is to bleed together the free will of man and the sovereignty of God But unlike what I would call maybe today a Calminian, he comes to different conclusions from it. So there is some truth in what he says, but there are some half-truths in what he says. Uh, Let me just first comment on this whole issue of election, because it often comes up on the Bible line, does God elect people? And the answer is yes. Any biblical Christian has to believe in the doctrine of election. He elected us before the foundations of the world. He chose us (coughs) and wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life ever before God spoke the world into existence. Now, does that mean you have no choice? And so it becomes not an issue, does God elect, but on what basis does God elect? And so, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1, I've opened my Bible to there. It says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. It's the word for elect. Who are chosen. How? According to the prognosis, the Greek word is translated here, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so we get our word prognosis from it. But uh, there's the the verb form and there's the... um, noun form that describes God's prior knowledge. Now, the Calvinists would argue, well, this prior knowledge is simply God lovingly choosing some to be saved and allowing others or predestining others. Some teach double predestination. Some teach single predestination, but both come to the same conclusion that God elects or chooses only a certain number. And so they re-kind of define foreknowledge as to what it means, but they ignore several passages in the Bible where the term foreknowledge just means beforehand knowledge. For instance, Paul in Acts 26 is giving his testimony before King Agrippa. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. And he uses the word here. It's in verb form for foreknowledge. Same word, though. They had previously known. They had had beforehand knowledge about me for a long time. 
So there the term specifically means prior knowledge. So I take it that God's election is based on his prior knowledge so that God could indeed record in eternity past knowing one that man would rebel, knowing two that it was in his heart and mind to love man and redeem man. That truth is underscored in Revelation as well, that it was in the heart and mind of God for to send his son to die for us. But that in no way changes any of our free will because God knew beforehand and based on that, his sovereign election took place. Well, uh, Molinism teaches that, but they take it a step further with what they call middle knowledge. And so let me, and this is where the real heresy comes in, um, and, it, and it is a heresy of sorts. And so in middle knowledge, as they describe it, God in essence, and I'm reading here from Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus is uh, giving some woes, woe to you, Chorazin. Uh, we are, God willing, going to that city called Chorazin. It's one of three cities that the Lord condemned. Uh, woe to you, Bethsaida. Um, God willing, we'll go there as well in our next trip to Israel. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable <laughs> for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, uh, and again, uh, condemns Capernaum. That's a very, very important town. When you think of the life of Christ, you should think of four principal places. One is Bethlehem, where he was born. Uh, Number two is Nazareth, where he was raised. But if you remember when he began his public ministry, and he had been doing miracles for a short time. Then he comes to Nazareth. They officially reject him. So the third place he goes to is Capernaum. And if you go to Capernaum today, there's a sign as you walk into ancient Capernaum, the hometown of Jesus. And it's actually a correct designation because that's how the New Testament refers to it. Not the hometown in terms of where he was raised, but it's the hometown in that he adopted for his three and a half years of public ministry. And then the fourth place that you should have fixed in your mind in reference to the Lord Jesus is Jerusalem, where, of course, he died was buried, was raised, ascended into heaven, in which he will come again too. So he says, uh, in you, Capernaum, will you not be exalted to heaven? Will you, uh, will you descend to Hades? For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, had occurred in you, they would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So um, this guy, you know, Luis de Molina argued for what's called middle knowledge. That is to say that when Jesus denounces these places like Horizon and Bethsaida and Capernaum, uh, and he makes these if statements, if the miracles had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so they take this if then kind of example, and they say, given a different set of circumstances, Here's how they would have reacted. And that's true. Jesus said, given this different set of circumstances, they would have actually been more open than you are, which really shows how hard some of these people were. 
you know, to the gospel, though they didn't obviously manifest that hardness in the exact same way as they did, say, in Sodom and Gomorrah. But then he takes it a step further and he argues, well, you know, if some guy had a presentation of the gospel, even though he never did, God knows how he would have responded to the gospel and would have been saved. If the Hindu, if the Buddhist, if the Muslim had this opportunity, he would have, quote unquote, been saved. And that's a jump that goes far beyond scripture because the Bible doesn't give that kind of if freedom. It makes it very clear there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not to mention that the passage that he often appealed to, Matthew 11, which becomes the basis for Molinism, is also a passage that teaches that these other cities were condemned. Sodom and Gomorrah was condemned. And when the New Testament looks back on it in the book of Second Peter 2 and the book of Jude, they're still condemned. They are under the eternal judgment, and he uses that as a warning. And so to make this as a basis for possible salvation is sheer folly, and it rejects the clear teaching of other passages. And by the way, I address this in my book, What About Those Who've Never Heard the Gospel, that's available at Search the Scriptures or at Amazon, uh, dealing with the unevangelization of the heathen. How does God view them? And besides that, as you've indicated in the past, everyone is exposed to uh, either through creation or conscience. That's right. Uh, to the uh, gospel. So they have they have some initial revelation, and based on what they do that with that, will determine where God goes from there. Very good. A caller says that in your message on the mark of the beast this past Sunday, uh, you were teaching about how people will be deceived after the rapture. Is this deception the same that's taking place today, keeping some from accepting Christ? Or will this be a different kind of deception? That's a great question. It definitely is different, but there are some parallels. And I tried to uh, underscore the parallel as a warning even for today when I asked everyone to turn to John chapter 12. And of course, uh, the Lord Jesus in the 12th chapter is performing all kinds of miracles in the presence of the Jewish people. And he gives them a warning. He says, for a little while longer, the light. And it's really a reference to himself. And so the new New American Standard capitalizes it because Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. And of course, he is the source of light. But he says, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Speaking of himself, while you have the light, so that dark, so while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. Um, you should believe in the light that you might become sons and daughters of light. So he's giving an admonition to the people while you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. And then he warned them these things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many miracles or signs, they were still not believing in him. And John then adds parenthetically that this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet had said 700 years before. And and then he quotes Isaiah, and then he says, for this reason, they could not believe. So because they would not believe, they reached a point where they could not believe. And that still applies today. When a man uh, is given light and he rejects that light, darkness overtakes him. 
And so then he quotes Isaiah again, and it says, for this reason, they could not believe for Isaiah said again, he, a reference to God, the Lord, Yahweh has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. In other words, there is an urgency to respond. You don't have forever. Number one, you don't know uh, if you have tomorrow. Uh, You could die before this program is over, listening to the Bible line and an aneurysm could hit your brain and it's history. Or you could have a blood clot to your heart and you could be dead. None of us have the promise of tomorrow, not to mention You don't know that Jesus couldn't return. The Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ. And once the imminent return of the Lord Jesus happens, for people who had prior to the rapture, prior to the harpazo, the catching up of the church, they will not respond. Not to mention, in addition, uh, no one becomes a Christian on their own. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. If you're dead in your trespasses and sins then the initiation for you to come into the kingdom has to begin with God because dead men can't respond. But that's the promise God made when the son said, you know, that I'm going to send the spirit and when he comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is a marvelous promise. So, so God initiates with us, not just in creation and conscience, but now in this age through the spirit who also in additionally convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so God has now overlooked the times of ignorance, and he's declared to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. And so if we do nothing with the convicting work of the Spirit and we just put him off, we're, in essence, hardening our hearts towards God. Seek the Lord while he may be found, God admonishes us. Today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, not an audible voice from heaven, but the voice of scripture, don't harden your heart. Uh, The temptation sometimes is to think, I have tomorrow to decide. You don't know that. Tomorrow may be too late for you. When you say no to God, there can come a point where you've crossed the line known only to God, and I say only to God, so don't lose hope. Most people would have lost hope on the Apostle Paul because he wasn't just kind of neutral or apathetic. He was a Christ hater, and we would have said he crossed the line a long time ago, yet he's wondrously converted. Most people would have lost hope on the thief on the cross, um, but he responds in the final closing moments of of life. Now, that's a warning to us in that there's only one deathbed conversion in all the Bible, only one, so that no one will presume that they have tomorrow, but there is one so that there's potentially hope. But remember, if you keep saying no to God, there can be a time where, in essence, you put the final callus on the human heart, where God, in essence, you can't hear him knock. You you can't hear him plead anymore. And you don't really care to hear him. And Jesus told this in the parable of the sower where he he warned that those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. So that's something that happens in this age. But what's going to happen 
in the tribulation age, so to speak, during the time of the tribulation period is similar, but very different in that it concerns those who had heard the gospel prior to the rapture. You see, there are some people, I've talked to them over the years, who say, well, if you're right and the rapture takes place, then I will believe then. And the Bible says, no, you won't believe then. Uh, because God is going to change the way he deals with people at that time. When the lawless one will be revealed, uh, the Bible says his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. I'm reading Second Thessalonians 2. With all powers and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved, that's what the antecedent is referring back to, for this reason, God will uh, send upon them, those who did not receive the love of the truth to be saved, a deluding influence. For what reason? So that they will believe what is false. For what reason? In order that they all may be judged or condemned Uh, who did not believe the truth, but they took pleasure in wickedness. And so what happens after the um, rapture of the church is the restrainer is removed. God's spirit is removed through the church and the convicting presence of the church is now gone. Darkness really begins to just overwhelm the the world. And we're seeing that today. We're we're seeing a, a tidal wave of sin, And one of the reasons is because the light is getting dimmer and God warned that this is what would happen before the rapture of the church. There's not ultimately going to be a great revival amongst God's people. Now, God could give a revival locally in Beaufort County and in some parts of the world, there seemingly are small revivals, but there's not going to be some worldwide, national, international revival across the planet. Because God tells us that what will characterize the church before the end of the age will be lukewarmness. And so as the light is getting dimmer, the impact of the church is being lessened with every year that seemingly goes by. That doesn't mean it has to be lessened in your life. You can still be passionate for Christ and make a difference. But overall, that's being true. And when the church is removed, my, not only will that convicting presence through the lives of changed people be gone. But in addition, the deluding influence will come across the world. So good question. I appreciate it. All right. Very good. Another caller just called in and dictated their question. They uh, are referring to James 514 and want to know what is the application of this verse today? Again, I've uh, preached the book of James chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I should probably do it again because it's been a long, long time. But still, uh, it's online if you go to searchthescriptures.org and you can listen to the messages on James. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray one for another so that you may be healed. Now, the context is, I think, is very interesting. It's a person who is sick 
because I think of sin, and that's why he's going to the elders of the church. And by the way, this is one of many verses that affirms the plurality of elders in the local church. I know some churches have what they call a single elder form of government, and they will often appeal to the seven churches of the Revelation where Jesus speaks to the Angelos or the pastor of Philadelphia or Laodicea or uh, whatever church it might be that he is referring to. I think there is certainly a leader amongst equals, what today we often designate in the 21st century as a senior pastor. But with that said, God had a plurality of elders in the local church. Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Not the elders of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural, of the singular local church. And I take it that this person, and I draw this out in an hour-long sermon in my series on James, is under discipline. And that's why he's coming to the elders. I warn some people sometimes when... And it's one of the most painful things elders have to do in a local church is to put a person under church discipline. They're under some kind of um, public sin that is bringing disrepute to the local assembly. And so God says, you go to your brother in private. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. If he doesn't listen, you take it to the church. And it's the elders' responsibility at that point as the leaders of the local assembly to remove the person. And Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 5 where you have a person who is um, doing something that is even repugnant to pagans, to Gentiles, which is how he uses the term Gentile in 1 Corinthians 5. It's actually reported and the, the, the verb is, kaleo, it's, it's broadcasted. In other words, you could say it's well known. Every, everybody knows it. It's not something hidden. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles. Well, why? Because they find it repulsive, namely that someone has his father's wife. You've got someone who's sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul said, you should have done something. You should have disciplined this member. And so, though I'm not physically present, uh, I am nonetheless in my spirit, and as an apostle, I'm going to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And so, he's talking about a believer who's going to be put out of the church, and with that putting out of the church, he is going to experience attack from the evil one. There is a protective umbrella that God gives to the believer in the local assembly. And by the way, the New Testament teaches church membership, not church floaters. And there's a lot of Christians today who who just float. They are unwilling to commit themselves to a local assembly, and they are not living according to the dictates of Scripture. God calls us to be under spiritual leadership, obey your leaders, submit to them. They give watch over your souls. And when those leaders remove a member from the church, then there is a physical discipline that can come on them. You see sometimes physical discipline, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. That is, you've, you've died. You've already lost some members because of prolonged, protracted sin, and it invited the discipline of God. So I take it that that's what's in view here. And so he's gone to the elders of the church because he's been disciplined and they're praying over him. And when they anoint him with oil, they are setting him apart again. And that's the thought behind the word. They're saying, we discern that this brother has genuinely repented. 
and this sickness that is connected to their sin. Uh, they've repented of it, and so we are now setting them apart once again. And, and God says when, that in that context, when the prayer is offered in faith, it doesn't say, well, maybe they'll be healed. They will be restored because there's a direct correlation between their sickness and their sin. Now, that can't be said of all sickness because there are people who are right in the center of God's will who get cancer, who get heart attacks, who have all kinds of physical problems because we live in a fallen world. But some sickness, I mean, in the broad sense, all sickness is related to sin and that there was no sickness before the fall. And so when sin entered into the world, death came with it. But in a specific sense, some sickness is related to specific acts of rebellion in the life of the believer. And so the elders pray over him. Now, that's not to say that, you know, we have people who come to us and say, I want the elders to pray over me and anoint me. And, and by the way, when they do that, we often say, is your heart clean? Are you in fellowship with God? Are you absolutely certain that this problem you're facing is not in any way related to some act of rebellion or dishonesty or adultery or, yes, yeah, so my heart is clear, but we want you to pray great, happy to Um, But remember the initial context. It's not what the faith healer is doing. This is a local church thing. It's not a faith healer. It's the elders, plural of the church. And, and it's dealing with a person. The next verse is therefore confess your sins one to another that they, um, that you may be healed. And the healing that he's referring to is physical healing. This is not a verse is some Episcopalians and Catholics use that we're supposed to sit around in small groups and then later evangelicals adopted and and confess our sins to each other. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a person who comes to the elders, not because they have any power to forgive sin, because who can forgive sin but God alone? Only God can forgive sin, but they are confessing, they are acknowledging, they are owning their sin that invited this divine discipline and they are seeking God's restoration and healing through the whole process. So it's a great question. Appreciate it. Listen to the sermon on James 5. It's online. It's searchthescriptures.org. Put it on your phone and listen to it while you're out cutting the grass or driving down the highway and listen to it at your leisure. All right. Very good. A caller wants to know if you would please explain in Daniel where it says that God raises and removes kings how does that apply to countries where the people elect their leader? Does, the God, does God still choose the president of the United States? Well, um, yes and no. You know, the Bible also repeats this truth in the book of Romans, the 13th chapter. And it, you might, again, this caller, I did a series on Romans, and I intersect this chapter with the quotation you just gave us from Daniel as it reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar and every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And then he reminds us for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, But for evil, do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what's good and you'll have the same. Why? Because it, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid because Christians aren't exempt. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is the minister of God as as an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. 
So there's a need for government, even in the worst of all cultures, because of evil that is in the world. No one would want to live in a world where there were no policemen. No one would want to live in a world where there was no authorities above us that held the sinful, fallen, Adamic nature of man accountable. And that's one of the functions of law. And that's why we willingly and typically uh, rejoicingly put ourselves under that authority in some respect. Uh, That's not to say that every authority, though it's ordained by God for that function that God has a full sanction and blessing on the individual who's supposed to carry out the role of affirming what is good and putting down what's evil, as this passage of Scripture uh, describes in, in further detail. That's what, that's what they're supposed to do. Now, Hitler was a governing authority, and, and he was there for a purpose. Remember, when Paul writes this passage, Romans 13, Nero is in power. In fact, you're just a, a few short way, for a few short years away from some of the worst persecution next to the coming persecution during the tribulation that the church has ever seen. Nero was the fellow who um, rebuilt Rome, and because he couldn't rebuild the slums, he burned them. And when he burned the slums, he had virtually a revolution on his hands. And so he blamed the Christians for it. You know, these are the fellows who who talk about calling fire out of heaven. And so he made them human examples to protect himself. And he literally had the Christians dipped in oil and he made them human torches in his garden. Did God approve of that? No, of course not. But Nero, nonetheless, still had murderers crucified, robbers imprisoned. And there was an authority that they had from God. That doesn't mean that God endorsed what Hitler did in trying to exterminate six million plus Jews. So you have to let scripture interpret scripture. You might want to listen to, I actually do two sermons on this in my Roman series and really covered in great, great depth. And uh, it's important. All right. Well, I guess our time has elapsed. I hear the music there, Rick. And uh, let me... Uh, Just invite you, if you've never been to Israel before and you think maybe you would like to go, in about a week, the brochure will be online at searchthescriptures.org as well as at communitybiblechurch.us. Or if you'd like to come to the informational meeting, it will be on September the 2nd at 1245 after the 11 o'clock service. If you're in a good church, I don't want to take you from that. So you can live stream that meeting at 1245, 1250, right around there. And you can find all the information that you would like to have for this September 2019 trip to Israel. Well, we're out of time, but thanks for being with us. If we didn't get to your question, God willing, there's always another week. God bless you as you walk with our Savior. <music> 